why don't we open with some prayer and then we'll get going. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your greatness and for your love and for your protection and care over each of us. So thankful for safety for all who came. It's been wonderful to see friends and to meet new friends. And Father, we commit this conference to you. Many come with lots of questions. Many come with some answers. And we all come humbly before you and ask for your grace in each of our lives. Thank you for the opportunity to share this morning from the things that we have learned from you, some through difficult days and some through wonderful days. Father, thank you. We commit the session to you. May you get the glory. And as we learn together, Father, thank you again for those who are here. And we commit our session to you. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. We were asked to submit two topics for this conference, so uh, I submitted both topics. Uh, the one I submitted for me was bomb blast injuries in the third world. I'm a surgeon and thought that would be a fascinating topic for all who came, how to manage bomb blast injuries. Um, the second topic was this topic, lessons learned from 20 years of experience. So guess which one that they accepted. <laughs> Somehow there wasn't an appeal for bomb blast injury management. So we're stuck with this one. So we thought this would be um, an interesting and hopefully helpful session about uh, the lessons that we have learned through all kinds of things that we were involved in overseas. Uh, so the way we're going to do it is we're going to give you a brief overview of the ministries that were not our primary ministries. They were things that we did in addition to our primary ministries and uh, share a little bit about some of the things we learned in doing things outside of our own comfort zone. Uh, many of these things we had no experience in, and we just followed God's prompting um, as we went along. So we're going to give you a quick overview of those ministries and then use all those together to share some fundamental lessons that, that touched on a lot of the ministries that we were involved in that might be helpful. Um, so... Quickly, I'm a general surgeon, uh, trained at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, my first overseas assignment was to the ELWA Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia, and we were there until the Civil War and then were evacuated during that time. Dorothy came as a short-termer. We met and returned until the evacuation during the war. Uh, Dorothy, by background and professionally, is a medical technologist. Uh, she did that for a short period of time, and then you'll see she was involved in a lot of other ministries. Her overseas experiences were um, in China, and uh, she also went to Malau during that time, working as a medical technologist, and then in Liberia, where we met. Uh, we were in Liberia from 1986 to 1990, and then because of the Civil War, we were evacuated um, and then spent some time in the U.S. before returning to Africa and were assigned to the Equa Hospital in Jos, Nigeria. And we were there for the next 20 years, and I was primarily working in the hospital, uh, in the surgery department, teaching family practice residents, and then involved in a number of other ministries. Dorothy worked for a short time in the lab and then, for some other circumstances, got involved in things outside of the hospital. So that's sort of what we were supposed to do in Africa. Now we're going to tell you what we did in addition to what we were supposed to do. Um, but one of the biggest questions that's always asked of us is, did your kids turn out normal? So a lot of people going out for the first time are very concerned about their kids. 
And actually, I think it's in one, I read every MK book there is available. And in one of them said, actually, parent, uh, children whose parents are medical missionaries are probably the most successful of any kind of missionary kid. And <clears throat> our kids are no exception. So our oldest on the right, when we went to Nigeria, she was six months old. So that's why my role changed, was I had a six-month-old baby that I was um, taking care of. So Marie now is in her fourth year, fourth year of PhD studies, and she wants to work with children who have gone through trauma. And she just got her first interview at the University of Arkansas, so it was a big celebration. So she's getting her um, residency applications put in and getting ready for interviews and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty exciting. Um, the two on the left there are twins, Heather and Anna. And they're about as opposite as they look right there. So Anna on the far left is now both graduated from college. Um, Anna is a fashion designer. She's actually working in New York City as a stylist. Any of you guys that want to do kind of what a gr the girls do, stitch fix, um, you can do one called Bombfell, and that's what she's working with. You write in your description. They'll send you clothes. If you like them, you keep them. If not, you send them back. So... Go Bombfell. All right, the, set, the middle one, Heather, is um, ex exercise, exercise science, exercise kinesiology kind of thing. So she's working in a chiropractor's office, and she's working with um, patients after they've had their chiropractic to do exercise and to make sure that those muscles get strengthened up. And David, the baby, is 16. Um, <clears throat> That's one of our favorite pictures because right now he's sporting the California dude look and his hair is down to here. All the girls want him to cut it, but being the good MK that he is, if you say cut it, he says I ain't cutting it. So he um, has just got his driver's license, so he's hopefully we don't get any phone calls while we're here. No phone calls is a good phone call. So um, and he's doing great. He's into photography. Just to give you a quick background um, about our Nigeria experience, most of this will focus on our time in Nigeria because that's where we were involved in a lot of these um, ministries we were going to talk about. Um, so geographically, you can see uh, Nigeria is right here. Um, and then this is a larger view of the country. Uh, the, the area that you may have heard about um, in, in the east is the area where most of the oil from Nigeria is from. Uh, Nigeria exports a lot of their oil to the United States, and it's a very rich crude oil, so it's very desirable. Um, so this area in the east is the oil area, and then up here in the northeast uh, is where the Boko Haram terrorist group is centered in Maiduguri, um, and that's where you've heard a lot about the Chibuk girls, and that whole terrorism area is primarily up in this corner. So we are right here in Jos, right in the middle zone between the northern Muslim zone and the southern Christianized zone. Uh, the, the Boko Haram began to expand their reach to Kano Zaria in the north, and they ended up coming down to our Christian area. And during the last three and four years that we were in Jos, uh, they started bombing in our city regularly. And it was really one of the reasons that went into our decision to leave four years ago because of the bombings in our area. So Nigeria is a very populated country that has half the population of the United States in an area about the size of the state of Texas. So it's a very densely populated area that is split right down the middle between a very strong Muslim north and a very um, 
I say Christianized because a lot of it is syncretic Christianity with a with a blend of syncretism between animism and Christian cults and Christian Orthodox teaching. Um, so it's a very interesting uh, geographic and demographic area. So the project we're going to talk about, I'm going to run through these kind of quickly because I think I, I, we want to get to the lessons, but we can't explain the lessons without some background in the ministries. So I want to give you a kind of a thumbnail sketch of the various ministries. So in the medical area, there, we started an optical shop making glasses. We had an ophthalmology uh, unit that was eye, doing eye exams. Uh, our area of Nigeria, especially North, North Africa and northern Nigeria, because of the Sahara Desert and the winds, has a tremendous amount of eye disease. Lots of things are born in the dust and the wind. So our area has a lot of eye problems. So we had an ophthalmologist, then two ophthalmologists, had a very busy eye clinic, but they weren't making their own glasses. And so we had a friend in Texas that donated some eye, um, some sunglasses equipment. So we started making eye glasses, and it was a wonderful little adjunct to the ophthalmology <laughs> workshop that we had. Uh, we also were uh, involved in the beginning of what became a very large project because of the childbirth-related injuries. A lot of women don't get adequate, adequate maternity care, and so there are many women that have obstructed labor for lots of reasons and end up, if the baby lives, even if the baby doesn't live and the woman lives, they end up with fistulas, holes between their bladder and the vagina or their bladder and their rectum. So those are called vesicovaginal fistulas or rectovaginal fistulas. This is a tremendous problem in northern, in northern Nigeria. They estimate in our middle area of Nigeria there are 250,000 women with fistulas. So when we got there, they had started this project, and we were involved in helping in an organizational way to help this project grow. The Kirchners are here. Um, they were also and have continued to stay very involved in this program. And it's at the point where they're helping repair about 400 women a year through the Fistula Project. So if you're project. interested in VVF, Carolyn is the person to go to. And she has more experience than most people in the world. <laughs> uh, the, other, the other interesting area that we got involved in was women would come to the hospital with botched abortions. They had bowel injuries. They were bleeding. They had infections, all kinds of problems from abortions that were done in the community by uh, people that weren't really qualified, if you will, to do abortions. Uh, a lot of these women would come in desperate situations and were asking for us to help them. And then there were women that would come to the clinic and the emergency room asking us to do their abortion because they knew we were a good hospital, had safe surgical practices, and so they wanted a, a good abortion done safely. Well, that put us in a difficult position because if we said no, they would just go down the street and find another clinic that would do it. So after a number of years, this, this really became an enormous burden in my heart. So on one furlough, I came back to the U.S., and I went to a crisis pregnancy counseling unit in Maryland, and I walked in the door and said, I want to start a crisis pregnancy uh, work or unit. How do I do that? And they spent some time and told me how to do that. And then we went to California, and same thing. I got some counsel and advice on how to start a crisis pregnancy ministry. So we went back to Nigeria. And we had been praying that the Lord would bring alongside us people that were interested in that kind of ministry. So we just kind of put an announcement out among the hospital staff and said, on such and such a night, we're going to have a meeting. If you're interested in something to do with crisis pregnancy, please come to the meeting. Well, much to our shock, 70 people from the staff alone came to the workshop. 
and that was what launched the crisis pregnancy ministry. Um, it was just an amazing opportunity, and they said to us after the meeting, we've been praying and praying and praying that God would help us do something about this problem. We didn't know what to do. So that ministry has grown and been involved in, in helping provide adoptions, identifying couples that were, were praying for a child because they couldn't have a child, and uh, it's just been a wonderful outreach um, to help deal with the problem of women that are in a crisis, um, some single, some married, we would have pastors come in and say, please, um, my daughter needs an abortion. Can you help us? Because my daughter is an embarrassment to me and my ministry. And so we were able to provide counseling, and most of the women were willing or wanted to, to keep the baby after we reconciled them with their family. And so that was the pro-life crisis pregnancy ministry. Uh, the next was, um, again, in the clinics we were we were seeing a lot of people that had hearing problems and through another ministry identified an entire deaf community in Joss. Just like there's the blind community, there's a deaf community. And realized that a lot of those that are deaf were good candidates for some sort of hearing device, hearing aid. And I discovered at one of the Kenya meetings, the CMDA Kenya meetings, that a company was making a solar battery-powered hearing aid. I'll say that again a solar battery-powered hearing aid, like a little deck of cards. And that little solar panel charged the battery, and a little plug went in the ear, and these people could hear. So we got a little machine to test hearing, and those that were good candidates we were able to provide with hearing aids. Again, something way out of my comfort zone, but God opened that door of ministry, and now they're involved in continuing to help with the hearing. Um, another opportunity came up. I'm going to just go through this because I just we've got a lot to cover. Okay. Um, this is my four-hour lecture on street kids. I'm going to give it in two, two minutes, minutes. Okay. She'll get a chance to talk, but but we just got to move along here. This is just the, the introduction to our talk. Um, when Dorothy um, first went to Nigeria, her medical technology background obviously put her in the hospital context. That, that didn't go real well because of some frustration she had working in the lab. And so she decided she would stay at home. And during that period of time, she would go to the market and buy her bananas and her groceries. And every day that she went downtown, these little boys would come up with a little plastic bowl asking for a donation or some kind of help. And she discovered there were many, many of these little boys running all over the city. Upon further inquiry, she discovered who they were, and many of them were boys that were in these little Quranic schools, and they would go around begging because the guy who they were living with couldn't support them all the time. So he would send them out to beg for food, and they had sores all over their legs and clothes that were tattered and clearly um, had lots of needs. So the Lord put on her heart to reach out to these little boys and provide them some food. And that began this outreach to street children and discovered not only were the Muslim boys, but lots of other orphans on the street for lots of different reasons. And that began an enormous ministry to street children that led to a discovery of the blind community, the leopard community, the leper community, and lots of indigent folks in our community that no one had ever thought about reaching for the gospel. So that was the beginning of what we call the street children ministry. Um, and I mentioned to the blind and the lepers. Uh, through that ministry, they also were able to identify a lot of widows who were unemployed. 
obviously in most West African countries, the the husband is the main um, income generator. Most of the women have a little market or a little side project to get some money. But once the husband died, the widow often had trouble supporting herself. And so out of the street children ministry, there began an opportunity to help train widows uh, and teaching them how to sew so they could support themselves. So that was another outgrowth of the street children ministry. As a surgeon, I um, ended up having to amputate legs of patients who had had trauma or osteomyelitis infections of the bone or tumors. And in in many cases, uh, we had no opportunity to provide them a prosthetic leg. Um, That was very frustrating because the only people that provided a leg had these iron prosthetics that were looked like an airplane fuselage that were enormously heavy and difficult to wear and were not very successful. So again, I came back to the States. I walked into a prosthetics company in Baltimore and I said, I want to learn how to make legs. Teach me how to make a leg. And so they took me to the back and they taught me how to make legs. And they were using very sophisticated technology with titanium and all kinds of stuff. And I said, okay, I got the concept here. I know how to fit a leg to a stump. Now I just got to figure out how to do it with relevant technology. So then I heard about a company in Kenya that was based in India that made legs out of PVC pipe. So they would wrap plaster of Paris around the stump and let that dry and take it off. And now you've got a socket. That's the image of the stump. And they would pour more plaster of Paris into the socket. And now they had an image of the actual stump. Everybody with me? So then they would take that and put it on a vise, on a stick like a popsicle. They would take the PVC pipe and put it in an oven. So we went downtown and bought a little oven for 100 bucks, right? And we put the PVC pipe in the oven and heat it up until it was soft and pliable. And then we'd pull the PVC pipe over the plaster, pull it over there real soft, and let that cool until the PVC was hard. So now we have a perfect socket for their stump. And then we, the only thing we couldn't make locally was the feet. So we ordered the feet from India. So remember, you got ten sizes of feet, and you got to have a right foot and a left foot. So we ordered bags of feet from India, and then we screwed the foot onto the stump, put a little leather socket there with a strap, and there we had legs. Made them for about 100 bucks. So I learned how to make artificial limbs, and that was another project to help reach out to amputees who had no other alternative. Then we learned how to make arms and got hooks. There's a much better arm solution today, but we, we got some hooks donated and learned how to make the artificial arms as well. And then we made the above knee with, a, with an articulating joint. So the Lord opened that ministry again to people that had no options. So we were able to take people that, that were really beggars. That was their only option to make them ambulatory so they could get back to their jobs and earn a living. <clears throat> Keeps on coming. We're only halfway through. Another opportunity that came up was to um, help HIV-positive widows. You know, the HIV epidemic has really been devastating in sub-Saharan Africa, and we discovered again that the widows um, from, from a husband who was HIV positive and died, they were also often HIV positive, but when their husband died, they had no income and very little support in the community because once it was discovered that they were positive, they were often ostracized in the community. So Dorothy had an opportunity to begin reaching out to them 
And that began a project to try to train people in the community to help HIV-positive men and women to care for them in their home and to provide some basic health care. Um, and that led to the Widow's Grain Project. And I'm going to keep going real fast because our time is already going. And that's another four-hour lecture, so, Dorothy. Again, but I will say this is Lamy, and she found out that she was HIV positive four days after her husband died of HIV. So it was pretty traumatic. So we invested a lot, in, not of money, but invested a lot of time into her family. And at the end of all this stuff, she was able to actually pay for school fees. We'll tell you about the project that helped her in just a moment. But all her, she was able to pay school fees for all her kids, and then she ended up getting hired by PEPFAR into the HIV ministry because she was positive and because she was so healthy. But that was very typical to find out that you were HIV positive after your husband had died and not know before. So Dorothy was going to the women's fellowship in the local church, and at the women's fellowship every Friday, they would take four offerings. How many offerings does your church take? Usually one. <laughs> the Americans are real cheap, right? Just take one offering, right? Write a check. And, or the ATM, you know, you've got an ATM, right? Uh, in the women's fellowships, they would take four offerings for this and that, the bus, and then they're going to do it for this and this and this. So Dorothy realized that if she was going to help the women, adding another offering would have been, again, an onerous thing to do. So, again, the Lord brought to her mind an idea that she'd heard about in India where the women were encouraged every time they cooked the meal for their family, to take a little handful of the grain, whether it was corn or acha or whatever it was, take a little handful of the grain while they were preparing for the family and put it in a bucket. For the evening meal, they'd take a little handful and put it in the bucket. And at the end of the month, they would bring their little bucket to the church for the women's fellowship meeting. So you had 300 women coming with their little bucket... You can do this part better than I can. Dancing down the aisle with buckets They'd come in head. down the aisle dancing, and then they would take their little bucket and pour it into a big grain sack, and the women were just flabbergasted at the amount of grain that they were able to gather as a group. And then that grain was then distributed to the widows. I mean, it was phenomenal. At the end of our time in Nigeria, we had helped distribute 90,000 buckets. Only. That cost 50 cents a bucket. And then after that, it was free because the women gathered the grain from their own household. And that grain was used to feed thousands and thousands of widows and orphans that were associated with the church in that community. So, again, just a seed of an idea that God used to help, you know, really millions of people through the country. Microeconomics. This is the one that relates to Lottie. So, please. So we tried a number of microeconomic things, but when we would give money to somebody to start a little market to tomatoes and onions and they would sell them, and after a couple months they'd come back to me and say, we ate all the tomatoes because they were hungry, they didn't sell enough, all that kind of stuff. So it's just a circular cycle that kept on going. It was like to do microeconomics, you can't eat what what you're doing. So one day my husband asked me on furlough, what are you doing with your wedding dress? Well, the wedding dress was stored with her parents. They were moving, downsizing, and they said, you got your, all, all your stuff back, including the wedding dress. Here, take it. Well, we were going back to Nigeria. What on earth are we going to do with the wedding dress? So he asked the question, why are you keeping your wedding dress? And the answer is, because you're supposed to. 
everybody keeps their, do you have your wedding dress? <laughs> so everybody keeps their wedding dress. That's the answer. And he just kept looking at me like, okay, so why are you really keeping the wedding dress? So I said, well, because my girls. Well, by that time we pulled out our wedding album. Our girls were 12. They looked at the dress. They laughed hysterically. It was the 80s, the big puffy sleeves. It was gorgeous. Okay, but that's not how they saw it. So I was like, okay, they're laughing hysterically. The dress goes. So I convinced my sister, 80s style dress also, to do with me. So we took back my sister's and my wedding dress. I gave them to Lami, and she started a wedding dress rental. You can't eat a wedding dress. It was absolutely successful. Because during dry season, every weekend there were weddings going on. So she rented out my dress on multiple occasions, my sister's dress, to the point where she went out and bought flowers. She bought jewelry. Then we started bringing more wedding dresses. I was getting donations. And she probably at the end only got about five or six dresses. And then after that, she had enough money to have somebody make a wedding dress that then she could continue on. She built an extra room onto her house so women could come in, try the dress on, had a big mirror in front. I mean, she went nuts with this thing, and it was very successful. So we ended up, after bringing several wedding dresses back, helping probably about 10 women be very successful in that business. And they, she was able, because at the point when her husband died, she had lost all hope. And now she was able to pay school fees for all of her kids and be able to food, put foot on the table at Add in addition to their house. It was quite exciting. So. Okay, go ahead. Gets worse. Oh, so, <laughs> um, so I had a friend who's like, why don't we have some goats? So our ministry to street kids, every Christmas you had to have meat. So we bought a couple of goats, a male and two females and a male, and gave them to one of our rural pastors. And the arrangement was he took care of my goats and then once a year, I would come and get payment, which was a goat. So whatever babies they had, he got to keep. Well, let me just say that <clears throat> they were the most prayed-for goats. And this pastor had multiples of twins and triplets in his baby goats. So he was a very successful in his goatheadship. And we took probably one goat as a tax per year to help feed some of our street kids. That was kind of a fun project. Okay. Now we now we get on to the talk. <laughs> well, you kind of get an idea that kind of lots of little things that included a variety of ministries. So that's that's the kind of extracurricular things that we did during our time in Nigeria. So we want to take a deep breath now. And now that you know, when we refer to street children, you know what we're talking about. When we refer to wedding dress, you know what we're going to talk about. So now we're going to run through some of the things that we learned through those experiences. Some were failures and some were successes. So we're going to kind of range it topically and sort of start flying through this. So people, I say it's all about people. It's really not about the project. And sometimes we lost sight of that, that it was really not about the success of the project. It was what happened in the lives of the people that were both involved in running the project and impacted by the project. Uh, that was very tempting. I'm a very project-oriented person. Dorothy's more people-oriented. And I found it much easier to run a project than to get involved with people. And, and, and I guess I would really emphasize that uh, as you begin to think about ministries, as you think about projects, as you think about whatever you want to do overseas. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that it really is about people. 
And if you're not impacting people for the kingdom of God, uh, I don't care how successful your project is, it's not adding to the kingdom of God. And, and that's real important. The other lesson in this is as you're involved with people, there were times when we thought we knew what the need was. <laughs> and then there's what they perceive as the need. And those are often very, very different. Um, and, and I think... So, so I had the brilliant idea that when we had these women come together, so we had the street kids, we fed them every Thursday, and eventually we had beggar women that include, came in and were included with us. And again, they were Muslim women who were widowed or beggar or divorced, or for some reason they were not able to sustain themselves. So they came to the ministry, and I had this brilliant idea that if we could help teach them how to, we were doing baskets, some market baskets. If we could teach them how to weave market baskets, they could weave baskets at home. They could be stay at home. They could be with their family and kids and all that kind of stuff, and they could sell, and we would help sell these baskets. A brilliant idea because one of my values is to be able to stay at home with my kids. Wrong. These were Muslim women who once they got married, They were trapped inside their house. As a Muslim woman married, you're not allowed to leave your house. So you have to send the young girls out to go grocery shopping. You send the young girls out to go run errands. The only time you're able to leave your house is for a wedding, a funeral, or some other celebration. So here, these women are beggars. They're not trapped anymore. They have a freedom to go around the city and to visit friends and do things that their counterparts have no freedom with. So here, I'm trying to get them back trapped into their home. And it took a while for us to understand that, yeah, this was not what they wanted. They didn't want to stay at home. They had a freedom that no other Muslim woman had because of their blindness, because of their destituteness. And so we were able to move it so that they were able to do the baskets at our center. So they were able to get out of that trapped feeling, be able to be and socialize with other women and be with our staff on a constant basis. And we were able to (coughs) run Bible studies without anybody knowing except them. So they were coming to Gidambege, that was our center's name, to weave baskets (coughs) and have just a little bit of time with our counselor, chaplain, whoever it was, and we're able to disciple women on the down low without anybody knowing under the guise of doing baskets. So we did a little covertness there. Another really important lesson that we learned through mistakes um, was in those relationship building experiences. There are lots of times that you want to bring along nationals to work in ministry with you or you need them to help you with particular things in the house. We thought we could identify trusted people or people that understood what we were trying to do. And we realized that didn't work very well. I was involved in some leadership responsibilities at the hospital and thought that I could identify trusted people in leadership later to find out that I had no clue what I was doing. And the people that I thought I could trust were hated by their coworkers, or they thought they were deceptive, or they didn't trust them. And that was a, a huge mistake that I made. And instead of learning to identify people that I could trust who would lead me to other people, 
I tried to sort out the culture myself, and I really misread a lot of people. One other example was in in many situations, in uh, third world situations, you hire people to help you in the house. Uh, a lot of our colleagues in America didn't understand that. You mean you've got a cook and you've got somebody that fix, you know, helps your yard keep clean and, and uh, takes care of the garden, and then you've got a driver, and then you've got somebody to clean the house. It's like, what are you running out there, some sort of colonial empire? And then we had to kind of back up and say, well, actually, each of those people that we provided work for was supporting about 10 or 20 other people in their house. And our providing work for them really had a lasting impact in their own home. It was also an opportunity to train and educate them and disciple them. And so it actually is much more positive than it sounds at face value. We tried to identify people to work in the home and did a very poor job of that and realized finally that it was much better to identify someone that I worked with or somebody in the church that we learned to trust and then they recommended people to us. And so you get through some of the cultural uh, barriers by identifying somebody that you trust that will help you identify other workers to go with. Uh, and another example was the hospital chaplains that we hired and who was trustworthy and who was not. And, and a lot of the overlay of tribalism uh, is a huge problem in many areas. In our town, there were many people uh, from different tribes working in the hospital, and that was a big problem in the hospital. I didn't understand all that. I honestly didn't understand. And, and until I began to identify people that I trusted who could refer me to other people they trusted, um, it was a problem, and we learned through a lot of mistakes. Um, another example that, that, again, was my naivety was when I began the prosthetics ministry, I thought it would be great to get an orthopedic nurse who I could teach to make the legs. That makes sense, right? Somebody that understands how people should walk normally, that understands bones and soft tissue so we identified a nurse who had strong orthopedic training, and we thought maybe he would be a great person to learn how to make the legs. And so we sent him on a course to Kenya, and he learned how to make the legs, and he came back. The first year he was back, he didn't make a single leg because he was asking me to set up an office that would have a refrigerator and a little teapot so he could make his tea, and he'd have soft drinks so he could entertain the people that came. And the list kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he never made a leg. And I was terribly frustrated until I realized that he really did not have a heart to reach people for Christ. I was not out there to make legs. I was out there to use that as an opportunity to develop relationships to introduce people to Christ. And I say as a surgeon, my goal, and people have heard me say this before, as a surgeon, my goal is not to populate hell with people who have good hernia repairs. And my goal was not to populate amputees with good legs. right? My goal was to reach people for Christ through some tool to help me develop a relationship. And so we flipped that, and I went to a friend of mine in another ministry, Street Children's Ministry, and I said, give me two guys that are trying to help people come to Jesus. So he sent me two guys, and I said, I'm going to teach you how to make a leg. Because they already wanted to reach him for Jesus. 
And that transformed that ministry. I was able to teach them how to make legs, and that ministry took off because their goal was to reach people for Christ. And it happened to be through a community of amputees. So attitude is everything. And we're going to keep moving because we've got a lot more to cover. Um, the, the other thing that, that I've talked a little bit about is the idea of training people. So we'll keep moving because we want to try to get through a little more. Um, okay. Culture is important. And I want, to, I want Dorothy to give an illustration of the importance of culture and learning culture and being sensitive to the differences in culture. I've given you a couple of my mistakes, and she's going to tell you a little bit about some of her experiences. So when I was at Wheaton Grad School, one of our assignments was um, in participant observation. So we were given an assignment, go somewhere, observe, and figure out the rules. So some kids went to the crosswalk and tried to figure out the rules of crossing the street. My buddy and I from South Africa decided we'd go to the bar. And I hadn't been to the bar in a long time. (laughs) And so we went. No, it had been a long time. So my friend, I, he and I went to the bar, and we walked into the bar, tried to figure out the rules, and it was very interesting what we learned just by watching. What are the rules to who plays darts next? What are the rules of who sits where? What are the rules? Found out bartenders never learn your name. They know your drink. So by the third time we came in, he looked at me and said, Sprite and your Coke with no ice. And he knew who we were by the end of the second or third time. And we'd sit in our corner chit-chatting and observing all around. I learned so much from just sitting and watching. So when I went to the Women's Fellowship, I knew my house, this was my language learning strategy. Sit and immerse yourself in Hausa. And so I listened and listened and listened and listened. And after a half hour, I tuned out and tuned out and tuned out because it was a three-hour sermon thing, signing, everything going on. But as I watched, I learned. I had nobody to teach me. But as different things came up, I began to understand their structure and began to ask questions to figure things out. So I began to understand that in the Women's Fellowship, there was a group of women called Wakilia, And their job was to go visit everybody, all the women in the church. If you were sick, if you were pregnant, if your husband was traveling, these Wakilia, they knew everything that was happening in the community. And as I began to learn that, and the HIV pandemic was coming towards us, I saw the tidal wave coming towards my women and understood they had no clue what was coming. They didn't have CNN. They didn't have any of the times. They had no Internet. They had no idea what was happening in Uganda and Kenya. And as I saw this wave coming, it scared the hajibis out of me. And so we started trying hard to educate the women about HIV-AIDS, started preparing the women. That's where the whole bucket idea came from because I knew the women of the church were going to be the burden, burden, were going to have that burden of caring for children. And the statistics back in the 90s about the number of orphans coming to the continent of Africa were astounding. It was overwhelming. Thankfully, that had never, has never happened. But that's where the bucket idea came from. And then because of all that about HIV-AIDS, I saw models from Kenya, from South Africa, people with their big vest with HIV person on the back of it, walking into a village and saying, hi, I'm coming here to visit you. Well, who did I just tell the whole village that who is HIV positive? And I thought, that is a stupid model. 
So we trained the women to do visitation, to train them in HIV AIDS, so that when they came to visit on their normal visitation, they knew what they were looking for. And at the end of the training, I said to the women, I'm going to triple your salary. And they looked at me and said, Mommy, I'm beautiful. The church isn't paying me anything to do this visitation thing. I said, exactly. Three times zero, I'm tripling your salary. So they understood that this was something, this was part of their ministry to the church was to visit women. And I helped give them the tools that they needed to help the family stay safe from reinfecting the children to reinfecting the caregivers and to be able to know what was going to be happening next. It was very exciting. <laughs> Another thing that, that we learned was that, that Nigerians love drama. So you've probably heard of Nollywood. There's Hollywood and Bollywood. There's Nollywood, which is Nigerian film production. Huge industry, and they crank out hundreds and hundreds of, of films a year that are, that are like the Bollywood kind of style of film. Um, Dorothy realized this through the Women's Fellowship that they liked producing dramas every year at the women's conferences. So she capitalized on that in providing AIDS education through drama. And so she would give the Women's Fellowship drama group uh, an idea for HIV education, and they would go write these amazing scripts and do these dramas that were absolutely fantastic to communicate through drama the education. Greg Kirshner was involved in providing mass casualty training in the hospital. We wanted our staff to understand how to deal with a mass casualty. And so he got in touch with the local church drama group, and they acted like patients, and they absolutely loved it. They got ketchup all over them. They came in groaning and dying of this mass trauma. They were so realistic. We had some lady come screaming in. She was the mother of a little boy that had his leg broken. The police would come in. The videographer would come in. All the drama group. And it was a wonderfully effective tool to teach both in the medical context as well as in HIV education. And that was because of the understanding that they love drama and they love to communicate through drama. So another little tip that we learned, understanding the culture. I'm going to keep moving because we've got a long way to go yet. Another, another thing from culture is the language situation. We were a terrible failure at learning Hausa, I just tell you. We took the language course that they offered. We took the LAMP method and tried that for a while. We took another language class and tried that for a while. Uh, Greg and, and Carolyn were much more effective in learning Hausa than we were. Uh, I, I, all I can tell you is one of my biggest regrets was that I wasn't more successful in learning Hausa because you learn a lot about the culture. I think you have more credibility with people if you know the language. Um, and, and I would encourage you, if you're going to work cross-culturally, to, take, to do what it takes to learn the language uh, because it gives you a whole lot of insight. I'll give you one example. And um, uh, if you're saying you're having a hard day, if you're saying you're having a lot of problems, right, the translation of their phrase, they say, shawahala, which means literally you're drinking trouble. And so they drink their emotions, they drink their trouble. I mean, that's just a wonderful insight into the way people think about life. And so as you learn the language, you'll learn about how they see the world, where their seat of emotions are. And another phrase of mine that I like is abindamamaki, 
which is their wonderful expression. If there's something that's amazing and surprising, they say, Abindamamaka, which means a thing of wonder. <laughs> so any new technology or seeing a jet fly across the sky, anything, they say it's a thing of wonder. So it's just fun to learn about the way people express themselves in their own language. As we were learning the language, uh, at one stage we had to take a level one test of our ability, both of us, to, to, to you know, to con- have conversational uh, level uh, grasp of the Hausa language. We got and to level one. We actually we, passed we got level there somehow. one. <laughs> so we were tested independently, and we were asked to say, I don't even remember the original expression. Oh, well, no, just that we asked the gardener to go cut the grass. Cut the grass. We asked the gardener to go cut the grass. Such a say. How would you say to your gardener, go mow the lawn and cut the grass? So we both independently said to the gardener, go wash the lawn. <laughs> Do you know what the expression is? I don't even know what the expression is anymore. But, but uh, again, okay. it's an example of our okay. total failure. We passed the exam somehow or another. But, but I, I, all I can tell you is that language matters. Uh, <laughs> even in our case, we through our failures. Um, and the vocabulary, the challenge is people think if you go learn the language, you got it. Right? It's not that easy. Right? There's a conversational market language. In my case, I was working in the hospital. So I had to learn medical vocabulary. That's very tricky when you're talking about the genitals and you're talking about all kinds of private things. That's a whole different level of the language, trust me. And then if you want to talk about Christ and the Bible, there's theological vocabulary. That's very difficult. They come from an animist background, many of them Muslim. And to get that vocabulary and understand how to communicate your faith, again, it's a different level of language learning. Um, So you don't go in there and just learn how to go and buy cucumbers, right? It's much more complicated than that. So if you're planning to work cross-culturally, learn the language, understand you may have to learn different levels of it. And Um, as I was writing the HIV home-based care curriculum, I had this idea of surveys and asking questionnaires, pre-tests, post-tests, pre-tests. Sorry, I can't even read your sign. What does it say? Ten minutes. Oh, my goodness. Pre-tests, post-tests. I had all these things that you're supposed to do. So I get in there, do the first seminar. Half of the women that we were dealing with were illiterate. So here's a nice word full piece of paper survey, and they can't read a thing of it. So they were copying each other's answers. They were like one person would answer. The rest of them was like, okay, this is not working. So as we, you know, continued to bring it down to a semi-literate level, I ended up using Wordless Book for Evangelism, taught the women how to use that, and they were excited to have some sort of tool that they knew they knew how what the gospel was, but it was a quick and easy way to do kind of a wordless book to present the gospel. So we're going to pick up the pace so we have a little time for questions. So culture, um, uh, I would recommend this book called African Friends and Money Matters. Again, we were clueless about money. Um, as Americans, we thought that money between friends was a problem. I wouldn't loan money to my friends in Africa. That builds relationships. It doesn't fracture relationships. Again, a complete misunderstanding. Uh, the one story is that a guy came to my house one day asking for a loan, and I said, come here, come here, come here. I took him outside my, the door of my house, and I said, look over the door here. Does it say bank? Does it say bank? And he said, no. I said, well, I'm not a bank. Don't ask me for money. Well, I just completely fractured any relationship I had with that guy because I didn't understand that in their concept, you build friendships through money. You don't destroy them. So learn about money. This is a wonderful book that I highly recommend. Um, We also have written an article in EMQ about how to handle beggars and people asking for money. It's very tricky. People will come all the time. 
and uh, we learned that you don't have to be everybody's savior. You don't have to solve all their problems. You ask, you tell them you'll pray for them and see how God will provide, and uh, it's wonderful to see that. Uh, Dorothy talked a little bit about the, the, the AIDS project and the, and the money. Uh, relationships is important, and we learned that from the beginning, as I talked about, and financial buy-in. We, we got advice from all kinds of people, including those that thought we were crazy and those that opposed what we were doing. The church leaders opposed our outreach to the Muslim street boys. They said, those are the people that burn the churches. Which and we said, true. I know, but they need to hear about Jesus. Yeah, it was true. They were the people that burned the churches. Um, but I went to several people to start the street kids ministry, and the first three people said, Dorothy, that's crazy. Don't do it. Went to the fourth person, Justina. She said, when are we going to start? And we started off, and this ministry has taken over 500 kids off the street, fades thousands of kids per year. It's an amazing ministry. So we talked a little bit about this using contextually relevant local materials in the uh, street children as well as the goats and rabbits and hearing aids, keeping the main thing the main thing. Um, I want to talk about that just in a minute. Um, sorry, I'm going to run through this because I want to get to the end here. This was, a, this was something that I, I want to emphasize is keeping the main thing the main thing. They're, they're, we're there to help them understand the wonderful news of the gospel of Christ. Uh, that's not a cookie-cutter approach. In the crisis pregnancy ministry, people were in not only a pregnancy crisis but a spiritual crisis. And, and that's an opportunity to come along beside them and, and help them understand the love of God and God's role in their life and God's presence with them through the crisis. Unlike other ministries where you have a long time to develop that relationship. In the prosthetics ministry, you had time in that relationship to help them learn about Christ. In the street children ministry, Dorothy decided from the very beginning not to tell them anything about Jesus for a long time. Because those Muslim boys would go back to their, um, their teacher and he would forbid them from ever going again if he knew that we were telling them about Jesus. So her goal was to establish credibility. And so they kept coming and they kept coming. And it wasn't until about a year into the ministry that she began to show films about Moses and Abraham, who they recognized as prophets. And eventually she talked to them about Jesus. So the timing of evangelism is very important depending on your audience and how much time you have to, to develop that um, relationship. And the other main goal was to make sure that we were an established place. So these kids who were six, when they left and came back as a 16- or 18-year-old, they knew where we were. And we have had at least 20 kids come back and find us and say, you helped me as a kid. Why were you there? What were you trying to teach us? And I want to learn more. And they came back, and our staff led them to Christ because the, the, the seeds were planted. So the street kids was purely a seed-planting thing. And I was, it took me a long time to be okay with that. But that was God's problem, not my problem. But I knew if those kids went back and said, I became a Christian, they would be killed. And I just wasn't going to go there. So we were available. The kids were there. We had some kids that did become Christians while they were there, but it was a very discreet kind of thing. You know, we can't overemphasize the importance of prayer and following God's direction. You know, this all didn't happen overnight. We were there 20 years, and those things kept happening and happening, and we were just riding the wave, we call it, of God opening up ministry areas. And, and, and I just encourage you to be sensitive to God's prompting and the Holy Spirit nudging you and go with that. So in summary, it's all about people. Learn the culture, learn about money, use the infrastructure of the church or other groups that are in your community, 
partner with other people. Keep the main thing the main thing. We're here to tell them about Jesus. Keep that forefront in your thinking um, and walk with the Lord. So final thoughts. Don't sacrifice your children on the altar of ministry. I can't emphasize that enough. Okay, your kids are, are, are important, and be careful that you don't overextend. Your kids will be okay, and there's examples of normal children. They will learn to be flexible. Um, it is stressful. We went through some very difficult times, and our children learned, as we did, to trust God through those difficult times. Uh, the biggest fear of your children, some of you may not know, if you asked your kids, if you're going overseas, what's your children's biggest fear? Most of you will not guess this. But the biggest fear of your children is that you will have to leave the mission field because of them. Because they know how important it is for you to be in ministry. That's where you have to assure them that they're far more important than anything you're doing in ministry. And make sure they understand that. Um, The kids' education is important. And learn that God is sovereign through the hard times and through the difficult challenges. We saw God's sovereign plan and him working that out. And even though it's not easy, his plan is still good. So we're going to stop talking, and we've got about two minutes for questions, so we'll be around, too, if people have other questions. So anything come to mind that, that we can help answer for you in the few minutes that we have left? We kind of dumped the truck on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes? The book that you referred to earlier, um, African Friends Uh-huh. Uh, I can flip back to that. I I don't remember off the top of my head. I've also written two books that, if you're interested in more details, one book about our Liberia ministry called Where Elephants Fight, uh, about the Liberian Civil War. And then I've written about all this stuff in Nigeria in a book called uh, Journey on a Dusty Road. I was hoping to have some here for the conference, but I'm not sure that they've arrived. So let's back up, see if there it is. Can you read the author there, Dorothy? No. Dwight, no, I'm not sure. I can't read it. It's a bit fuzzy. You just Google it. Sorry. I think the, the, the couple things that are, that are significant in the book is really understanding the culture of money where you're working. What's their perspective on money? Before you begin handing out money, before you begin not handing out money, before you make assumptions about offerings and participation, Understand what their perspective on money is, especially in, in, in terms of well, how they see the relationships and the relationship to money. I completely under, misunderstood. And, and as an American, I knew what I thought about money and what most Americans think about money. We save money as a personal. We plan for the future. I don't loan money to my friends because it changes the way we look at each other. Those are all American assumptions because of individualism in America. We hold individualism higher than anything. Okay? That's not true in Africa. In Africa, community is more important. And so money is shared in the community. You expect people to participate in money decisions. And money is strengthening relationships. See, that may not be true in Asia. It may not be true in South America. The point of the book is understand what is, concert, what is the, the culture of money where you're working. And I, I will say the book is not well written. I'll give you that caveat. It could have been, you could have had a better editor. But the principles are very profound. And, and, and really going in as a student, and then with that understanding, then it will help shape your ministries and your personal life. When people come begging for money, right, they're honoring you because they think you're a successful person, that I want to have a relationship with somebody successful. 
And so we do that through money. See, that, that's not the American way to do it. <laughs> See, understand, we had people come. Yes, yes. It gets in a little bit of that, but a lot of that stuff you can learn through other cross-cultural communication textbooks. He's really not trying to do a cross-cultural communication textbook. He's trying to give you the idea that money is perceived very differently in different cultures. Go in with that understanding before you begin doing a whole lot of stuff, and it will change the way you do business. See, we had people coming to our house every single day asking for money. We've been home in the States five years. I've yet to have a cert- well, my son is the only one that's asked me for money on multiple occasions. We did not know how to handle that because you came to my house and said you needed school fees. I knew you were poorer than a church mouse, and I knew if I gave you $10 and you needed 1000 it wasn't going to help you squat. So I felt this compulsion to give you the whole $1,000, which was not needed at all. It took us a long time to understand a small portion was part of the relationship building, and you would actually find the rest. The biggest lesson I learned is a guy came to my house, said he needed money for a sewing machine, and we honestly had put aside, we had our money to give in our little packet of cash, and it was gone for the month. And we agreed, when that's gone, no money goes out of the house. And I just said to him, I said, I'm really sorry, we have no money this month to help you, but I'll pray with you. And so I sat and prayed for him and sent him on his way, One month later, he comes back to me and says, I got a sewing machine. The church took an offering and gave me a sewing machine. That was the biggest (coughs) lesson I learned was I was not the solution to everybody's money problem. And it took me almost my whole 25 years there to learn that lesson. I'm not the solution to all the money problems. I can be part of it, and prayer is just as effective as giving cash. And it was a lesson to him, and it was a huge lesson to me. So thank okay. you. We'll I be around, so feel free to ask more questions. Good. Thank you. Thank you.